Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 162. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and with me is my co-host, Jay Pestercelli, CEO of Zega Financial. Jay, how are you doing today? Derek, great to be here. Look, back-to-back weeks, I'm here. It is amazing. It's like a new commitment to the Broken Pie Chart, which I am committed to. It is a new day, and uh, our listeners will be very pleased. Uh, Are you feeling a little upside down, though, today, Jay? There's something happened this week. Yeah, I feel a little. What's the word? Inverted? Is that what inverted? Oh, you mean like the yield curve? Like the yield curve, right? Right. What does that mean? I keep hearing about it. What is? (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, okay. Okay. Yeah, and I I think our our listeners, Jay, at this point, uh, probably know what the yield curve is. Of course, that's when shorter dated rates on bonds are higher than the longer dated rates. And right now, the two-year treasury yield is greater than the 10-year treasury yield. And Jay, I think this is predicted 89 of the last 50 recessions or something like that. But actually, let me let me put it to you, though. I mean, it, as an indicator, if we just look at 10s minus 2s, does it mean immediate recession? Does it, you know, how accurate it is? I, mean, I know you were looking at some data recently. Yeah. And, and so just for, yes, yeah, so I want to hit the data in a moment. Um, so what, what I think about, like, let's put it into kind of really simplified terms, or it mean, it, this means that if you lent the government money for two years, they will pay you a higher annual rate than if you lent the money, the, you lent the government money for 10 years. They're going to pay you less for a 10-year commitment than for a two-year commitment, right? And that is not the way bonds typically work, right? Longer time frame means longer risk, longer lockdowns. You should get paid more for the more risk you're taking. But when the yield curve inverts, like we have right now, you're getting paid a little more, not a lot more, by the way. We're talking like one or two basis points, I think. But you're getting paid more for a two-year commitment than a 10-year commitment. And you go, why, why would... Why would somebody do that? Why would somebody decide to say, you know, I'd rather take this two-year commitment and less and get paid more uh, versus the 10-year, right? So at this point, I don't know. I wouldn't buy a 10-year. I'd buy a two-year, right? I'm going to get paid more for less risk. That seems kind of crazy. How, it's, it's more of like, I got to ask you first, Doug, before I get to the data, why does this happen? Why would such a thing even exist? We're supposed to get, you know, for more return, we're supposed to take more risk. Why is this not lining up with the market is actually a better question. Yeah, my, my quick answer is it's probably three things. The Fed is obviously raising rates. And so they control, they have the most control over the shortest part of the curve, everywhere from, you know, four-week bills to, um, and I, in the two years, definitely affected by that. But certainly the, you know, the three-month treasury bill, things like that. The second is, inflation expectations and growth expectations. So if you look at break-even rates, which measure you know, the indifference point between owning the nominal treasury and owning the, the TIPS bond, the Treasury Inflation Protected Security, break-evens are higher on the five-year than they are the 10-year. And so basically what that's saying is the market says that they expect more inflation over the next five years than years six through 10. And then it's growth expectation. It's the idea that, you know, when you have good growth expectations, you would expect a nice steep yield curve, meaning the 30-year pays more. And uh, the more the, the difference, the, the delta, the difference, the, the separation between all these years, 
the better. And there's some distortions with the Fed, and we can we can sort of get into that. But Jay, that that's really the three main things, Jay. Right. It's few, it's it's a lot of looking out right in time and what you think things are worth today versus what they'll be worth in, in the future. So, yep. Thanks for explaining that. Maybe one of these days we'll bring up like what the you know the five year five out or the one year one out looks like. But maybe maybe we'll leave that alone for now. Uh, let's let's talk about the frequency of this inversion, right? Because it doesn't happen all that often. You were just joking, right? It's predicted, you know, 98 of the last 50 recessions. And I know those numbers are backwards on purpose because the theory out there on Wall Street is that the yield curve can invert and it doesn't guarantee a darn thing. But it certainly does uh, seem to precede every recession that we've had since the 70s. So, when I, you know, when I look at the recessions we've had in, you know, 80 uh, early 80, then, you know, 90, 91, you look at 2001, you look at 2008, and I'll even throw in the COVID one, which was a quick recession in 2020. All of them were preceded by the yield curve inverting, the twos uh, being uh, paying higher than the tens. However, on this chart, there are also times when the yield curve inverts and you don't get a recession right away. You don't get one for a while. Uh, the one that stands out to me the most, the one that really kind of stands out to me uh, in all of this might be, uh, you look at 1998, in June of 98, the yield curve inverted first. Uh, nothing happened. Then the yield curve inverted again in Feb 2020, which then we all know what happened with the dot-com bomb in 2021. So that one stands out to me, uh, you know, going back to maybe even, heck, 78, those, we are not in the interest rate environment of the late 70s. I know sometimes we bring it up. That inverted way before the recession of uh, 80 happened. But, you know, it did, right? So, uh, by the way, it stayed inverted for quite quite a while uh, uh, during that time frame. So I think there's a lot you could just... I'm going to leave that one off the list because it's just a very different environment. But still, even that it wasn't a forward indicator to my satisfaction. But... But when you look at each one of these recessions, yeah, there, there's an inversion before it. And why should oh, I'm going to take us off topic for a second? Why, why should we fear recession, Derek? Like, why is it bad? What's what's the problem with you know recession when it comes to us as long term investors? Like, why do I care? There's a recession coming. I mean, primarily, it's uh, I think it's I'm going to give you a quick answer: employment, employment, employment. It's if you have if you have people losing jobs, it removes demand, purchasing power, and revenues go down from companies. I mean, that's my quick answer. There's other things in it, of course, but yeah. No, that's that's what I would say. I think that's it. People end up, hey, I don't have a job, I don't have money to spend. Corporate earnings drop. We know. We always say this, right? Corporate earnings and interest rates drive what's going on in the markets. Well, if all of a sudden companies are not making money, their earnings will drop. And, you know, and guess what? And that causes more people to lose a job, right? So all of those things kind of compound, right? I just, I wanted to put it out there. I know people think a recession is the worst thing in the world, but it's really about jobs and it's about your ability to spend money gets reduced and companies, as we watch on the S&P 500 or on the indexes or in the, the stock market, will make less money, which could reduce earnings, which reduces price on the market. Okay. I connected all of those things together, Derek. Sorry, just kind of keeping it, uh, 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 keeping the flow at, a, at an accelerated pace today. Let me, let me ask you, Derek, because you, you have 
uh, always been uh, a proponent of the bond market kind of telling us something in the future, right? Um, we got the jobs numbers today. Jobs still seem really good. You know, the the yield curve is still crossing. Like, is is it's like, are we getting a mixed message? Is the economy good, or is it is this you know more predictive of something, or do we think it's going to be one of the head fakes? All of the above, and maybe <laughs> <laughs> no. So okay. So one of the things you have to remember with with the job numbers, it is a survey. So literally, they have people who make phone calls and say, are you currently employed? You're not employed? Okay. Have you looked for work in the last four weeks or something like that? I mean, I'm oversimplifying it. And if people are no longer, if they're unemployed and no longer looking for work, then they're actually not technically part of the labor force. They're not technically part of the unemployment. So labor force participation Look, it's, it was lower after 2008. It has started to tick up before the COVID recession, but it is, it is substantially still lower now. And so while the, the rate of employment is, unemployment is, is low, and that's a positive thing, um, I would also say, you know, we try not to, to bring any sort of political talk into this, but obvious, I, okay, maybe obvious to me, uh, the government had a really strong fiscal response. And when you send a pretty good percentage of our GDP out in checks and have other programs, it's always about incentives. So I think some of the incentives to, you know, had all these things not been there, maybe employment would have picked up quicker. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's good news, but Jay, it's also bad news because it means that the economy isn't going to slow down on its own. This is the theory. So the Fed has to go in and cause a slowdown, right? Yeah. Uh, well, that's the fear, right? That that the Fed action, and we said this also in other uh, episodes, the Fed action could be too extreme because the, you know, the job market may push them into it and they cause a recession just by raising rates, right? That's kind of the fear um, I, I don't think the Fed wants to deliberately put us into a recession, right? I fear, I feel fairly confident a recession is not their intended outcome. I think they could misstep and cause it, but I don't think that's, would you agree with me, Derek, that's not their intended outcome, put the U.S. in a recession? I think if it was, okay, I'm going to be fair to the Fed. If their intention was to do that, they would raise interest rates to 5, 5% right now. But, you know, I think one of the reasons why they're doing it gradually is they're hoping some of the things uh, you and I aren't convinced that raising rates is going to help inflation there. I think they're hoping some of the things that are contributing to inflation will work themselves out. That said, if you look at a chart of the fed funds rate, and so that's, that's kind of what, uh, you know, people look at for the federal reserve controlling interest rates and you know, it's a, there's a pretty high correlation when they're raising rates. Eventually it seems like there's a good correlation between a recession afterwards. And I know I've sent that chart to you, Jay. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's like, I wouldn't be surprised if we went into a recession because of what the Fed's doing. And if this time is different, I wouldn't be surprised either because of how low we are. But I don't know. Yeah. yeah look, I, th- I think that's it's in this data that you're talking about when the Fed is in a raising cycle, you it is followed by a recession. I'm looking and it typically 
they stop, and then the recession happens. Um, and sometimes it takes a long time for it to happen. So I guess it's a matter of timing. And maybe that's what that's connected, you know, full circle back to the whole inversion of the yield curve. That the full, you know, the, it could take a while for this uh, inverted yield curve to tell us that a recession is coming, right? Or that we actually experience the recession. So, yeah, I mean, look, the reason the Fed raises rates is to slow the economy down. Um, I get it. It's hot. And we don't want to have 8, 9, 10% inflation. I don't want to pay 10% more next year for what I'm using this year. Well, it makes it very hard for us to outperform inflation as money managers, right? And as, as advisors. So, yeah. yeah, like we don't, we don't, we don't want that to happen. So, yeah. I'll give you the uh, the the anti-recession, anti-yield curve argument, and that's 1994. Now, although the twos and tens did not invert, the two-year over the 10-year, the five and the 10 did invert. And I just, I don't have the date in front of me, but, you know, that has been a really good, much like the 10 and the two, a really good predictor. And it's not immediate. But 94, the Fed was raising rates. We had just had, I mean... Starting in 82, the, one of the greatest, the greatest bull market ever started in 82. But 94, the market was really flat. The Fed was raising rates. And I remember being on a trading floor and people were saying, hey, this is, real, this is getting flat. They're raising rates. People were getting bearish. And guess what? From 94 up until March of 2000, it was a really strong continuation of the bull market. It never technically inverted tens and twos, Jay. But everyone, I can tell you, was really bearish. And guess what? Seven years earlier, it was 87. So everyone still had those biases. So um, same thing, you know, you pointed out in 06. 06 to 08 was a really good couple of years, right? It was. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, by the way, back to your 94 example, right? The Fed went, Fed funds rate went from three to about six, right? So they started raising, right, at the end of... Uh, uh, like beginning of 94, January of 94, peaks out in May of 95 at like six, right? And you're right, no recession until 2001. Right? So that's a long time between them. So that's a good one to point out. You're right, it didn't invert. The twos and tens didn't invert. The fives and tens did, which by the way, I want to give uh, recognition to Derek, who uh, properly called the five internally. Uh, with us, I don't know. Did you say it on the podcast? Did you did you tell everybody you expect the five? I don't. To I don't work? know. Yeah, I think we. Uh, you want an Amazon gift card for me on that one? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I didn't. I didn't make any other money on on the the thing happening. But no, it's. Uh, yeah, I I thought the fives and tens, and it was really a break even, break even fives, break even tens. I I kind of saw that. Jay, last thing before we transition to our other topic is. Does the yield curve cause the recession or is it something else? And I would say that each of these had their own little special reason for the recession. I mean, uh, the government shutdowns, I mean, that's the most obvious one, the, the recent ones. But, right, I mean, the tech crash, the housing trouble, I mean, the last couple. Yeah, it's always, it's always something else, right? It's always like the market is poised. Like, obviously, nobody, the market was not predicting uh, you know, the financial crisis in 05 to occur in, you know, in 07. Some might have been. But COVID certainly in, you know, when the yield curve inverted in August of 2019, nobody even heard of Wuhan, China. Well, I guess people from Wuhan, China. My apologies to anybody from Wuhan, China who's listening to the 
to the podcast. Uh, but, he, you know, like nobody even thought about COVID, right? But COVID came, boom, recession. So, yeah, I'm with you. It's I agree with you, Derek. There's something... There's something else that causes it. It's not the twos and tens inverting that cause it, but it's the uh, what I would say it could be the you know the, the the preparation for tightening within you know corporations and the economy were were there, right? The the, the positioning, the bias to be ready for that was probably there, and it feels like that's what's happening right now a little bit. January of eighty nine. By the way, uh, the yield curve inverts. We have a recession that was technically, I guess, July of of ninety, but that was the first Gulf War. We had a spike in oil prices, you know. So anyway, that's and and this is why we hedge, Jay. Yeah, well, this is exactly right. Let's tie like, what do we do? You guys talk about inflation and recession and and risk to my portfolio and I need growth. Right. This is, we don't know when it's coming. We don't know how it's going to come. They come in different flavors and uh, while they're never the same, they rhyme. Uh, so we hedge, we protect, right? This is uh, this is kind of the point of why we talk about this. If the yield curve didn't invert, Derek, would we still hedge? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. You're absolutely right. It's just part of the, listen, we have we both have strategies that are obviously more aggressive, but for the, the main core of a portfolio, we are always talking about have the protection on because you don't know when it's going to come and in what flavor it's going to happen. All right. Speaking of uh, flavors, the flavor of the day right now is inflation. I've heard some talk about stagflation. And I thought it'd be interesting just to discuss with you like the idea of, okay, like why is inflation, why is it good or bad for companies in the end and over the long run we know that when corporate earnings are growing at a really good rate that is positive we know that people what they're willing to pay for future earnings that waxes and wanes we know that last year there was a reduction in that multiple this year there is a reduction in the multiple corporate earnings are up but what people are willing to pay for future growth is down so just thinking about i mean in the end right i mean a business has revenues they have cost and they have net profits, right? I mean, that's, I don't think we need to overcomplicate it too much to start, Jay. Nope, that's, that makes sense. So let, let's think about this. So inflation happens and really your input costs go up. So if your input costs go up, what do companies have to do, Jay? Uh, they have to raise prices. Simple enough. And at some point, if they can't raise prices, enough to you know commensurate with the input cost what happens uh we call that demand destruction <laughs> right <laughs> right people will stop buying right i just you know hey maybe i just can't bring myself to pay 20 dollars a pound for chicken so I, i'm not gonna buy the chicken by the way chicken i don't think it's a pound. i haven't been to the store in a while but it's not 20 dollars a pound yeah, and and so far, by the way, net margins have been really good. Now we'll we'll start to get more info and more light uh, shine on all of this when come, I guess next week, right, or maybe two weeks when earnings really start to to roll in. But net margins so far have been, and in, Jay, in a weird way, like inflation almost gives companies a license to to raise prices. And I guess the other side of this is if people believe that prices are only going to go up, they are more apt to buy now 
which pulls forward demand, right? I mean, like if you if you're like, oh, houses are only going to go up, or cars are only going to go up. Oh, I better get a car today. I'm sure real estate agents. No offense to real estate agents, but they're probably telling their their buyers, you know, you better get in a house today, right? So, I mean, I think those are all aspects that that come into play. Um, I guess the other thing too is you could have you seen. I don't know if they've done it this time, Jay, but in the past, the container of like chips or something that little raised uh, part at the bottom that goes up or you get less chips in the bag, even though it's the same size bag. You've seen that, right, Jay? Uh, Yeah, I've seen it with cereal for sure. Um, Oreo cookies, man, I don't know if they're doing it, but I remember the first time they reduced the package size. Right, so 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 maybe this is like a weird way to, I'm going to say disguise higher prices because the price is the same, but the quantity you get is less, right? So one way or another, you're getting, you know, you're not getting the same number of chips or Oreos or pieces of Captain Crunch you used to get for the dollars you spent. Yep. So the the thing is though, so we, it's pretty simple, I think, when we lay it out that way, of how inflation affects companies. And so if companies can't raise prices, if they can't continue to raise prices, and there comes a point where consumers are like, no, no, no. And, and by the way, employment is the elephant in the room here. If employment ever drops, that's a totally different shift on demand. But companies also can innovate. And there's something in economics called the production possibilities curve. Don't worry, I won't lecture you on a, <laughs> I'll give you an econ 101 lesson. But basically it says, hey, if they get more. There's a guy that won the Nobel Prize for that, right? That, the, the guy that wrote that won the Nobel Prize. I'm pretty sure he won the prize for that. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. But it's it's one of those things. Look, if companies get more, um, like imagine you or I, Jay, were like, hey, we're going to come up with this thing. It's called the iPhone. And you and I are going to construct them on our own in our basement. There's only so many that we can put out. So we have to r- have a price that's really, really high. And what happens over time? Companies get more efficient. They have automation. They have new processes. They, they reduce costs. They have a new way of doing something. And I almost guarantee you, I mean, companies that are, that are look, doing things, you know, planning forward out, uh, they're looking at ways. How can we cut corners, get more efficient, get more productivity? And so companies can do that as well. And one of the, the benefits of companies doing that is if price increases, the rate of change does abate, um, all of a sudden they, ha- they have all this innovation and productivity that they get to keep. So I don't know, Jay, if you have any comments on on that part of it before I kind of think about the supply. Well, I, I think the perfect example on what you're just talking about, about how efficiency and innovation will bring prices down is TVs, televisions, right? It's the most obvious one, right? You could, I think I just bought like a 70 inch uh, screen TV, you know, for like under a, under a thousand. It might've been, and you know, it wasn't like the 8K, you know, quantum, whatever they got out there these days, but uh, it was just a standard great 4K TV and I paid less than a thousand bucks. When I first moved to Florida in 2013, not so, so long ago, nine years ago, gosh, that maybe this is a, an extreme example. That same TV would have cost me eight grand, right? So by the way, that's, I still have that eight grand TV, which sorry, now I'm admitting it that I spent that on TV. I still love it. It's great. It's doing a good job. But my whole point is, you know, like you said, as you're as you create efficiencies, you can bring prices down because the question we always get, like, well, will prices ever go back to where they were? 
And the answer is for the exact same product, probably no, because it costs a certain amount to make something or for, you know, uh, uh, I know food costs can be a little, little wonky there and have some variations in it based on, you know, things like weather and, and, and those kinds of things. But, you know, in general, prices are going to be what they're going to be until you get something different and more efficient that could bring it down. So, you know, the, that's the problem with inflation is it could stick around until you have factors that will drive it lower. And, you know, the way things are going right now is, you know, let's call it like I'll, I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb. It's not a big limb, but say this is more of a supply driven <clears throat> inflation problem, uh, then, you know, we should see prices high for a little while. And that's just it, it could stick around for a bit. Just thinking broadly about uh, when I think about, you know, going back to economics 101, there's supply meets demand. And if you're driving, don't do this. Uh, please pull over first. But if you kind of took your your left hand, your right hand, your two um, pointer fingers and just made a made an X, it's the idea is that your right hand would be your demand line. Your left hand would be your supply line. And where they meet is called the equilibrium. It's where supply meets demand. That's where, uh, you know, price is at its equilibrium. When you have demand that goes down, uh, revenues, quantities go down, and price levels go down. And generally, that's price level goes down, quantity goes down, GDP goes down. That's your classic demand-driven recession. When demand increases, uh, basically what happens? Okay, well, price levels go up, quantity goes up, GDP is up. That's okay. You know, that's, that's not that bad. But what's happening now, in my opinion, is, is supply has decreased. And when supply decreases, the quantity goes down, meaning the amount of widgets that you're selling goes down. Uh, the price goes up. But overall, um, this is the model for stagflation. I'm not saying that's where we're going. And it's price up, uh, but you're, you're not able to sell as much and, and GDP goes down. And that's what happens in the late 70s. That's what people are talking about. And in this case, we've had, in my opinion, um, a little bit of both demand increasing. And I, this is my opinion, that it's based upon the fiscal response. It's the stimulus. It's the different programs. It's also a shift from experience-based things to goods, things that have to be put on a boat and shipped from faraway places to the U.S. And so... That's one of the things that they're talking about right now. And it's and there's a couple ways you get out of that. One is, you know, demand goes back to equilibrium on especially hard goods, but supply is able to to fix itself. But that's that's a quick, you know, <laughs> economics 101 thing. And it goes back to Jay also, the idea that, you know, if for companies um, and going back to corporate profits, the danger for companies is that at some point, their price cannot increase as much as the price of their input cost. It causes demand to, to go down. Um, but Jay, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but that, that's generally sort of the discussion. It's like, you know, what's going to happen on the long run? Yeah, I mean that that's so I agree with you there Derek and uh the the, the only comment I would make here when we, and you know stagflation is the environment you don't want to get into, right? Like you you just said it, right? Prices are higher, um there's not enough around to to purchase. 
Uh, inflation uh, is, is, is definitely not your friend in that scenario, but you have no growth right, to help. Um, the one thing I would say that may be different now than, say, than other uh, stagflationary periods is we seem to have a pretty, pretty strong job market. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of folks out there. There's a lot of opportunities out there for folks to go get work. And so the idea of, you know, stagflation pushing us into a recession, or maybe it's a result of the recession, I think is probably a little different this time um, that we still have strong, strong growth. But like you said, we start to see that peel off. Um, and we start to see that less people are going to work and less people are earning. And, and uh, that's, that's, that's the environment we're trying to avoid. And so, you know, before, um, you know, when you talk about the pieces of, of stagflation, you know, we were always saying, yeah, okay, inflation may be here, it may be gone, we're not so worried, but growth is really strong. Okay, then inflation came up and you're like, okay, there's the first leg of the stool and maybe inflation will lead to, you know, GDP decline because we're going to destroy demand because prices go up too fast. Okay, corporate earnings, there's the second leg of of the stool, in my opinion. And the last one, of course, would then be, you know, uh, 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 unemployment, a problem with unemployment. And so people can't, you know, even, you know, go to work to figure out a way to, uh, uh, to pay for their basic needs. So that's, to me, we're not, I think the first leg is absolutely in on inflation. It's not transitory. It's here. What are we? What are we talking about again for March? Potential. Uh, what are the Fed? What's the uh, nowcast say? Uh, it's we, about eight eight point one percent. Eight point one. Yeah. All right. So again, another month. You know, near. You know, ab- above, close to, or above eight uh, is is in. It's not passing. It's not an anomaly. So you know, we got to watch for the. What does this really do to the to the corporate uh, to the corporate side of things and and corporate earnings? You know, we we have said in the past on this, that, you know, all of the pieces that uh, uh, were in place that drove growth the last few years, right, low interest rates and high corporate earnings were still in place at the beginning of 2022. But now, you know, and so we should, even though we we deserve the breather, we still thought there was going to be growth in the stock market, right? But now, you know, both of those two things are going to start to come into question. And if the Fed dings both of them by raising rates too fast and putting us into a recession. Now we've taken away a lot of things that drove the market from going up the previous three years. I'm not saying it's guaranteeing a market the market will go lower, but the building blocks that drove the market to double over the last three years uh, are going to be there's going to be cracks in them, right? So we'll just we'll just have to watch for that. So sorry, tying all that around to investing in the markets uh, a little bit there, Derek. But you know that's that's kind of my take on it. It's not doomsday yet. For me, uh, the jobs market is still good. We're going to get corporate earnings. It'll be interesting to listen to what the outlook is from all of the CEOs and CFOs that are on the earnings calls, right? What their outlook is. And so far, we haven't seen with the flattening yield curve. I mean, so there's some institutions that borrow or collateralize on the short end and then invest on the long end. I won't get into the complexities of that, but like a bank. Yeah, but not but not all banks do that. I mean, not all. That's true. But you know that that was one of them. That's what you know. Ninety four, we found out uh, Orange County's pension was borrowing short, buying buying long, and when they inverted, that caused uh, you know the the bankruptcy of uh, nineteen ninety four and in the OC as they say. But you know that's the other thing too is it's 
there's some distortions when you get this yield curve flattening, yield curve inversions about uh, collateralizing different operations. So we'll have to see about that. But you said the good news is that, and we'll get a really good look at earnings. Uh, the expectation is earnings are going to be up, I think, about 8.8%. Uh, Bob Pisani was on CNBC, and I think that's what the consensus is right now for 2022. So earnings growing is good. That's really good. And especially net margins have been the highest they've been in decades. Also really good. And the good thing is we don't have to pick market direction, Jay. We just buy and we hedge as the primary thing. So um, I do wonder, by the way, people like your son, are they getting calls from like the unemployment office being like, hey, are you employed? Like, are they really capturing those people? I mean, come on. Well, he's 17, so I hope they're not calling him for it. He would he would test badly in that phone call. But uh, yeah, no, like I don't yeah, I don't know. Like, you know, I know there's always been a lot of the, listen, I think you're you were insinuating that, you know, the unemployment number, you know, isn't a real reflection of what might be going on. But I will it, but it's consistent, right? It's consistently Correct. inaccurate. So you could you watch it for trends, right? So I'm not, you know, so so while you're right, I also gotta say, you know, they're trying to keep it. It's the same inconsistency, and so it's trends that we're trying to infer from the data, right? Yep. I think they call like 80,000 or 100,000 households and this and that. So I've never got the call. What's that? I've never got the call. They never call me. They never call it. They never call me either. I did. I got the only time I saw. So I I worked in college. uh, One of the jobs I had, I worked at a Gap store. And I do remember the people from the Bureau of Labor Statistics coming in and they were checking prices on clothing. And so they, they had this barcode scanner and they would, they would scan it. And I said, what are you doing? And they told me they were from the BLS and they were, they were building the, the pricing data. And I thought that was very interesting. I was like, they need the prices of men's and women's jeans. So they went to the Gap. Just come into a store, get the prices, write it down. I don't know how they do it now, but that's how they did it back then. So... There is this thing uh, online now. I think uh, you could shop online. Have you heard about that? Oh, are you talking about the the internets or whatever that is the the World Wide Web? Yeah, www yeah, I mean, or something like that. Yeah. Maybe they do that now, Derek. I don't know if they're going. I'm just teasing <laughs> about that. <laughs> but look, before we wrap up, uh, deflation is not necessarily bad uh, as long as companies can get their their production costs down commensurate with with deflation. Like deflation means lower prices. You don't want too much deflation because you don't want people to be like, I'm not buying anything because I know next year it's going to be even lower. I'm just going to wait and sit on my money. But in general, I mean, if if prices come down, more purchasing power and if companies can maintain the margins, uh, but that's a separate discussion maybe for another time. So Jay, I uh, want to thank you again for coming on today. And I think it's We've been getting questions about this, and I know that uh, you know both institutional advisors and also their clients are getting questions. Hopefully, this will at least spur some discussion, if not understanding in their own minds. So, appreciate the time today, Jay. Yeah, I, th- I think people appreciated uh, the lesson from the professor, Derek. And if somebody wanted to get in contact with you, how would they do that? Oh, yeah. Thank you. It's uh, Derek.Moore at ZegaFinancial.com, D-E-R-E-K dot M-O-O-R-E. And that's Zega, Z is in Zebra, E is in Eddie, G is in George, A is in Apple. Financial is up to you to spell correctly and be happy to go over how we invest, uh, how we develop portfolios, or if you just have a suggestion for a future episode that maybe Jay will be on. 
maybe not. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens next time. So, uh, Jay, thanks again. And of course, uh, www.stegafinancial.com is a place to, uh, to check out more information. So I think we'll call it there, Jay, and uh, we'll be back uh, in a future week. Thanks, Jay. Hopefully soon again. We'll see if I can do three in a row. There you go. <laughs> see you, Jay. Bye. Bye.